Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. Today's episode features former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analysis royalty, Barbara McQuaid. We recorded this Friday morning about 10 hours after the end of the primetime January 6th hearing. What a hearing. Am I right? We both stayed up late watching, and then we got up early to talk about it. So I hope you enjoyed this in-depth conversation as much as I did. Now, this episode has bonus content only for subscribers to the Deep State Radio Network. I wish everything in the world could be free, but becoming a member isn't expensive and has many benefits, including ad-free listening and bonus content on all the Deep State Radio podcasts. We know not everyone is able to pay extra for a subscription, so we appreciate it if you can, but do what you can. Thank you. Hello, Barbara McQuaid, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies on this. It's Friday. I think it's July 22nd. I really have no idea. And um, it's most important thing is it's Joyce Vance's birthday today. It is. I've already, <laughs> sent, uh, I've already sent a gift. <laughs> but I thought we'd be baking cookies for her today in case she doesn't get the cake of her dreams. Before we get into, I guess, recapping last night's Love Island episode, um, <laughs> We will be making a very, very intense, I'm making a very intense chocolate, chocolate cookie that has, Mm. it's a very thick cookie. It's filled with white chocolate, peanut butter chips, and dark chocolate chips. Wow. That sounds like quite a cookie. Yeah, it is quite a cookie. And you know what? That Joyce Vance, she's quite a cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Joyce is like, oh my gosh. Joyce does send you fond greetings and believes in your she said she believes in your baking capability. No, just so I've, you know. no I've none <laughs> and, and I have no interest in any, but I do enjoy eating. So um, I'll, I'll take it there. Just know people who can bake then or know where the grocery yeah. store is. So last night there were these uh, congressional hearings and I wondered if anything surprising other than Josh Hawley's beautiful gazelle-like game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that one was funny, wasn't it? That was like not really all that important to, you know, any crimes, know. Or anything, but it was like, like, like delicious karma. <laughs> it was just so beautiful. Yeah. And a little dig, that, you know, a serious dig that he was out there pumping his fist, uh-huh. being protected by the police. Well, he was also inciting people to run over the police and yeah. get into the Capitol building. Um, so I've, and he turned into a meme, maybe the fastest meme that ever happened on the internet, I think. <laughs> they had to know that was going to happen, right? Yeah, they had to. I mean, it was beautifully done. But other than that, was there anything that popped out to you last night that made you think, hey, yeah. or whatever sound you make when you discover something? <laughs> Yeah, actually, there's. I, I thought some um, some really interesting new things that we learned last night that were, I think, really important too. And you know, if it feels like, how can we still be learning new things, right? I mean, after all this time. But I thought a couple of things that were super interesting. You know, one is Adam Kinzinger framed that hearing last night as Trump did not fail to take action; Trump chose not to take action. And exactly. I think then all of the evidence kind of built on that frame. 
And one thing that was new to me that I hadn't really thought about before that was so interesting was the fact that he did not record that video asking people to go home until after it was apparent that the physical attack had failed. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting point because I, you know, I kind of previously thought, well, he dragged his feet maybe, or he wasn't mm-hmm. aware of how dire it was. You know, there are all kinds of ways to spin that, but you know, they're begging and begging and begging and begging, and only like, okay, it appears they've got it under control. Now he decides to to record the video, and then you know, until then, not only was he refusing to do something, we heard Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General, say Trump was the commander in chief, and he did nothing, zero. He seemed incredulous at that. And then we heard about, you know, these two witnesses, Matthew Pottinger on the National Security Council Mm -hmm. and Sarah Matthews, a communications professional who said, you know, not only was he refusing these, the pleading to to please do something to stop it, he then tweets that 224 tweet that Pence didn't have the courage to do his duty. And as as Sarah Matthews said, that poured gas on the fire. Not not only did he fail to take action or choose not to take action, he actually took an affirmative action that made it worse. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And then, of course, the um, the stuff that was occurring at the Capitol that was a little different that we hadn't heard before, where, you know, as Pence is being spirited out of there, we, we'd already seen that backstairs video mm-hmm. of him coming out and, and, okay, you know, they got him out of the way. But what we hadn't seen before is what was going on in the second floor, the floor he had to go past. And the agent we saw last night says, all right, I'll check it out and I'll see what's going on down there. They're getting really close and you could hear them. And you can see, you know, that female officer's voice says, you know, we've got six officers between us, but then the the mob is starting to grow. There are five people here now, and now there are more, and there's some unknown smoke and gas. And they kind of decide it's now or never, you know, we got to get them out. That's not the greatest, but if we don't act now, we're not going to act. And that agents are radioing in and saying, say goodbye to my loved ones. Like they didn't think they were going to get out of there alive. I thought that was really powerful. I thought that was really powerful too. And for all that I am like Donald Trump's biggest non-fan, right? Like I <laughs> loathe him in probably- A lot of competition every- for that. I don't know, Marissa. <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. But, you know, I've, I've, being a New Yorker, I've known about him for a long time. So I've had a lot of hate yeah. building up over the years. Sure. But there's mm-hmm. something about like my own naive sense that made me think, well, come on, maybe- he was, he's just that clueless guy, but to find like, to hear so much evidence, how willful his inactivity was, yeah, was shocking to me. And to, you wrote a piece, I think it was earlier this week that had a very catchy headline and a very interesting thought, which was, do you think it's possible to convict Donald Trump of manslaughter or would he be responsible for involuntary manslaughter? I think you could. And boy, based on what we heard last night, I think the case has only gotten stronger. You know, there has been kind of a trend that we've seen, at least here in my state of Michigan, where everybody mm-hmm. wants to criminalize every bad act by a, like a public official. We mm-hmm. had our former governor, Rick Snyder, charged criminally with misdemeanor offenses for neglect of duty related to the Flint water crisis. And although I think he he was you know a terrible administrator and did made some really awful decisions, I don't think it amounts to a crime because I think a crime requires criminal intent that there mm-hmm. was something bad and I you know I did it on purpose and I knew that. Similarly, there's been arguments that our current governor Gretchen Whitmer should be charged with crimes for bad policy decisions about sending people to nursing homes during COVID that eventually led to their deaths. You know, like maybe a bad decision, but not a criminal decision. But what Trump did is very different. And again, I come back to the way Adam Kinzinger framed this. 
it wasn't just a failure, you know, like a bad choice, a bad decision, ordinary negligence. He chose not to act. He was the person who could have stopped this. He's the commander in chief of the armed forces and could have called up the National Guard and he did not. He could have walked, what did she say, like 10 steps to get to the White House briefing room and done a video that they could put out instantly saying, go home. And he chose not to do that. He could have tweeted and said, go home. But not only did he not tweet, go home, he did tweet, Pence has failed us. Trump, Pence has failed to, which you know, poured gasoline on the fire, as she said. So, you know, the elements of manslaughter under federal law is, you know, one, a death occurs at a federal building, federal property. So we've got that. Five people die that day. There's four more yep. suicides you might be able to attribute, but probably not able to establish causation there. But the elements, in addition, are that there is an act or omission that causes death, and that was done with the mens rea of failure to take due care which I would say in this context requires gross negligence. And so I think Mm -hmm. the question comes down to, did he have a duty to act? Yes. Did he fail to take that duty? Yes. And was death reasonably foreseeable? They showed us what he could see. He's watching Fox and they showed us the clips from Fox. People are like breaking (laughs) down windows. They're coming in the door. He knows they have weapons. The idea that, you know, a police officer is going to have to shoot one of these people, very reasonably foreseeable. The idea Mm -hmm. that someone would be trampled to death as she was, reasonably foreseeable. The, the idea mm-hmm. that someone would have a medical emergency and they wouldn't be able to get to them in time, reasonably foreseeable. I think you could make a case for manslaughter here. And so I don't know whether they will, you know, it may fail to encompass the, I don't know if it's greater, but equally repugnant crime of allowing our democracy, attacking our democracy, but it doesn't have to be an either or you can have a, and both in uh, <laughs> charge it, you know, as, as just a five additional counts in an indictment. But Man, I think of any uh, crimes became clear last night. It's this obstruction of an official proceeding because he wasn't doing nothing, Marissa. He was That's on right. the phone. He's talking to Giuliani and he's talking to senators saying, let's use this to our advantage to continue to, to delay this proceeding. Boy, right. If that's not obstruction of an official proceeding, I don't know what is. Right. And Giuliani gets on the phone afterwards and says, hi, I'm calling on behalf of the president. <laughs> hey, buddy boy, let's do us do us a little favor here. Yeah, do us a solid. Right. And this is talking about doing a solid, like while the Capitol is not literally, but figuratively burning. It's just so obscene. It's just so disgusting. Um, Um, But they're all about winning. They're all about winning. And I just read uh, this morning that friends of theirs, Bill Barr, what's his face, Roe, and Steve Wynn are thinking of starting a PAC or have started a PAC to preserve electoral states' rights. Yeah, to oh. set election laws. And, oh and you know, it's, it's what's the name of it? Restoring trust and integrity in elections back. I'm going to call yeah, myself you know, the queen of Twitter and maybe it'll be so. <laughs> well, you know, that is a bit how disinformation works. If you exactly say right. it and you repeat it fr- fr- frequently enough, and if you get some credible proxies to repeat it, People will believe it. I don't know if you saw, there was a video on, on Twitter. I saw it this morning, but apparently it was last night. You know, Michael Fantone, one of the officers who was injured, and he testified at the first hearing, and he has been showing up at these other hearings to, you know, support the officers who were injured and, and others, and he's keenly interested in it. As he is walking out of the Capitol last night, he is accosted by protesters who say, are you even a real police officer? Why are you lying? You know, all kinds of stuff like that. They appear to be ordinary people. I don't know. Uh, 
But man, the idea that after all of this, there are still people who believe these lies. It's so disturbing. Yeah, I heard an interview with someone on NPR this morning, and it was guys saying, well, I think all of this is really, it's a fake trial. It's not real. And, and, and none of the stuff they're showing us is real and terrifying to think that these people are living in cloud cuckoo land, but everyone is in their own little world. And I don't know, I think there are people, I I hate when people say, well, there, there's certain group of people who are never going to change their mind because I always feel, well, of course you can change people's mind because, you know, I'm a journalist. And and if I say the right thing, it's going to make someone go, wow. And I don't think it's possible. Do you? No, I think, well, I think there are some, and I think those are the people, you know, you hear Liz Cheney is constantly beating this drum about, I know this is hard to hear. (laughs) You know, it's the way you talk to crime victims who have been duped by someone they trust. People who are um, victims of fraud oftentimes don't want to believe it. I know it's hard to hear, but, and so you're trying to persuade them. And also, you know, you can't have freedom without information. You can't have, you, you have to choose freedom or lies. And mm-hmm. I think she is trying to persuade those who are persuadable. But, you know, one of these strongman tactics is divide the world into two and only two tribes. And you're either for me or you're against me. And it doesn't matter what the facts are because you're mm-hmm. on my team. And my, te- my team is the team of good and the team of Jesus. And the other team is evil and the devil. And they're all pedophiles. And so, the ends justify the means. And I think mm-hmm. there are people who fought into that and they don't care what these facts are and they're not going to believe them. It's all fabricated because our dear leader would never do any of those bad things. Right. Of course not. Uh, which is the strangest. I can't even, I, I can't conceive of people thinking that way, but, yeah. but it is very black and white. So manslaughter on paper would be something that's provable to me. Dereliction of duty, the new DOD, you know, is really really came out singing last night as just willful dereliction of duty, but I'm no lawyer. Yeah, but not a crime. You know, dereliction of duty is, is you know, that's a great thing to impeach somebody on. Great okay. thing. <laughs> uh, and boy, if only we had had an impeachment of Donald Trump. Oh yeah, we did. did. Um, wait, if, only if only people knew, <laughs> if only people knew back then what he, oh yeah, they did, but they, they chose to remain silent. Can you imagine if Pat Cipollone or even Sarah Matthews or Matthew Pottinger or Cassidy Hutchinson or any of these people that are now being framed as heroes had come forward and told us some of this stuff back then, he could have been convicted after his impeachment and the Senate could have voted to never allow him to hold office again. That would have been a very good way to hold him accountable. Instead, Mitch McConnell said at the time, well, we have a Justice Department. They can charge him with crime. Well, okay, let's go, Merrick Garland. Um, And I'm not one of these people who thinks Merrick Garland is sitting on his hands. I think they're, they're on it. And it just, you know, it takes far more time to make out a criminal case than to just show a one-sided story at a committee hearing. But I think they're going to get there. And I think dereliction of duty, you know, again, when you're looking at a crime, you have to find a statute that's on the books, not just really awful, profoundly awful behavior, but some statute that has been violated. And the ones that come to mind, manslaughter. But I also think obstruction of an official proceeding is right there. He's trying to stop this proceeding of the joint session of Congress to certify this vote through vigilante justice. Like Mm -hmm. you just can't do that. The time to challenge it was in court, which he did. You failed. It's over. By December 14th, the electors have voted. It's over. Fake electors is not the way to challenge, uh, legitimately (laughs) challenge an election. So it's over. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. I think that's a possibility as we look at, you know, his efforts to 
pressure Brad Raffensperger and pressure Rusty Bowers in Arizona and mm-hmm. solicit fake slates of electors. I think that one's there. And then the other one that I, I hope and believe the Justice Department is investigating is seditious conspiracy, which requires force, the use of force to oppose the authority of the United States government. We've got those Oath Keepers and Proud Boys charged with that crime because they did agree in advance. You know, that wasn't a organic, let's just, uh, we, we got a little out of right. hand and we decided to go in and um, <laughs> exercise our First Amendment rights. And it was a planned formation, stacks, strategy, weapons stored outside the city limits. If you can tie Trump to that one, mm-hmm. then you can charge him with seditious conspiracy. And that's a very, very serious crime. It is the closest thing we have to treason during peacetime. And I think they might get there. You know, they have flipped four Oath Keepers, DOJ has. They've obtained the phones of Stuart Rhodes, who's the head of the Oath Keepers, and Enrique Terrio, who's the head of the Proud Boys. And we know that Roger Stone had this Friends of Stone group chat. Mm-hmm. If we can connect those up, now that, that might get you into the Willard Hotel war room, which might be able to connect Trump up to an agreement to use force against the Capitol. And so that might get there. But, but any of these crimes, frankly, will do. Yeah, anything. I'm really They're all pretty bad. <laughs> They're all of them up there. One of the interesting things, and this is just a little aside, but I um, didn't go to school to become a lawyer. I am not a lawyer, but I feel that in the past four or five years, I've had a pre-law education. Like I could go possibly work in some sort of <laughs> law firm, yeah. maybe just at the front desk. But I know everything from mens rea to um, yeah. You, my Latin's gotten a lot better. You've been a U.S. attorney, you're a University of Michigan law professor, that you probably have some passion for the law. You also have become sort of MSNBC legal pundit royalty, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I, I don't remember a time in my life where so many lawyers have been on TV trying to explain what's going on in our country. Yeah, I think it is an interesting moment where there is so much crazy going on during you know, is, that, was, is that latin crazy? yeah that's a legal term of art <laughs> jargon well you know during the trump administration there was so much chaos every day and I, I think that people want to make sense of it they want to understand it it just seems so strange there's politics and there's hyperbole and then there's the law what you know yeah. what if, and, and, and i think most people care about the rule of law and want to understand how can this be okay how can this be legal and so you know, I see my role is trying to explain. I know there are a lot of people on cable TV who like to hyperventilate and, you know, <laughs> spout opinions and get people riled up. And I try to stay calm. Once in a while, I, you know, express something strongly. But I really just want to help explain. You know, Rachel Maddow says it is the mission of her show to add to the amount of useful information that exists in the world. I like mm-hmm. that motto. And, you know, I see my, I, I'm a law professor, I see my job as uh, public education. And to the extent I can help people understand what is meant by mens rea or stare decisis, or, you know, like, you know, a great example, I think, of where explanation of the law can be very helpful. When Rudy Giuliani was searched, he was outraged that thugs had come and raided <laughs> his phone and taken his phone and seized them. And to explain, like, what it takes to get that, it means a judge has found a probable cause to believe evidence of a specific crime will be found on those phones. To even ask a judge for that at the Justice Department, it requires approval at the highest levels, which was during the Trump administration that these phones were seized. And so the idea that Rudy Giuliani is somehow balks at people, thugs taking away his phones is just remarkable to me, right? This idea. 
it, had he never done that to anyone himself? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. done it himself a thousand times or more. He knows that. And he's just trying to generate outrage. He's trying to get people riled up to think, wow, look at this. This is a political crusade. And so, you know, I, I see my, my job is just to try to explain, no, this is how it's done. Jeffrey Clark did the same thing. They made me stand outside in my pajamas <laughs> while they raided my house because yeah, they had a search warrant. And, <laughs> and it doesn't happen on their own. A, a, a judge, you know, an objective, independent member of the judiciary looked at this and said, yeah, you've got probable cause. I authorize you to go get that thing. So anyway, that's how I, I see my role is just trying to help people make sense and understand this so that they can form their own opinions. But, you know, by having some facts and some knowledge about how the law works so that they can put it into perspective. Yeah, I found it extraordinarily helpful to have you and people like people like you and Joyce. And of course, you know, I didn't really give you a, a good introduction on this podcast, but you are also one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, which is Sisters in Law. Oh, thank you. That That is the best like time I spend walking the dog <laughs> on the weekend, <laughs> listening to you figure it all out. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's actually become kind of therapy for all of us. We record late Friday afternoons and it's a really, I've really come to look forward to our conversations because it's really a chance to just try to process all the really bizarre things that happen in the news. It's a nice reality check. I have so much respect for the others. Kimberly Atkins Store, who's a columnist with the Boston Globe and a lawyer, Jill Wine-Banks, who is a former Watergate prosecutor and has some really great historical perspective on some of these things. And Joyce Vance, who, of course, who's a former U.S. attorney who I've known for a long time. It's really nice to get their perspective because sometimes I think, am, yeah, am I the only one seeing this? In some ways, it's affirming. But in other ways, sometimes there are things that you, we may have differences of opinion. I thought something was a big deal or not a big deal, and they have a different view. And so mm -hmm. it's useful to you know just sort of get a reality check from <laughs> smart people who I respect. <laughs> exactly. I thought one of the interesting things last night was these sort of odd, playful, almost gotcha moments that they offered up where it's like, Liz Cheney sort of waggles her finger at Kevin McCarthy, you know, and was like, and if mm -hmm. anybody's listening to Kevin McCarthy out there, let me just make a point to you. Or um, Jared taking a shower instead mm -hmm. while Rome was burning, which I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. They do, they do love to throw in these little tidbits, I think, just to, I don't know, smear the other side. But I do think it does add to the narrative a little bit that, you know, what, what's going on. You know, the other one that we heard was Eric Hirschman well, we finally got Trump to uh, do that video. It's about 4.10. Ah, oh, we're just drained. So we went home. Oh, poor you. Are you kidding me? People are literally dying at the Capitol. And these police officers, you know, I think there's a tendency to minimize the ones who didn't die. They went through some really serious trauma that day. There are four committed suicide in the weeks that followed that. I mean, they, they absolutely thought they were going to die. They are in hand-to-hand -hand combat for hours. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're not really equipped for that. They're used to crowd control with peaceful protests and how mm -hmm. to deal with that. But as, um, you know, the officer who testified a while back uh, said, this was like a war zone. I'm not equipped for that. I'm not trained for that. I, I couldn't believe mm -hmm. what I saw. And so I think some of those contrasting tidbits are really important. You know, the other thing that Liz Cheney has been doing, in addition to talking to people like their, you know, crime victims, is she keeps using words to kind of invite people in, you know, like mm -hmm. the dam is starting to break. Witnesses keep coming to us all the time. You know, we were only going to have uh, right. the initial seven. Um, then we had eight. We're going to have more in the fall and we're going to use August to continue to collect evidence. So, you know, which side do you want to be on? Which side of history do you want to be on? Which side of the law do you want to be on? You want to be a witness? You want to be a defendant? 
come on in. You know, people like Kevin McCarthy or Mark Meadows, boy, it sure would be great to hear their testimony. I thought one of the most powerful things we've heard, and it wasn't new, but we got we heard it again, is the congresswoman who overheard Kevin McCarthy's phone call with Donald Trump, where he's, you know, please, right. you know, they're so upset. You got to help us. They're well, maybe they care a little more about the outcome of the election than you do, Kevin. Wow. He's like <laughs> taking the side of the insurrection. At first, he said, oh, these are, it's Antifa. No, it's your people. Uh, well, maybe they care a little more about this than you do. Like, it'd be great to hear from Kevin McCarthy about that, uh, if we could get him to tell the truth. Or Mark Meadows, who, yeah. you know, was at the heart of all of this, is, you know, in and out of all of these rooms. Uh, so she's kind of inviting them in with this, you know, the dam is beginning to break. Uh, it's the same way that prosecutors, you know, talk to cooperators like, oh, well, you know, we got someone in the door. The, the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma. Yeah, you're, you know, your, your buddy's talking over there. Maybe you want to talk too. We have to transition now to the bonus, the bonus portion of the uh, podcast. In our bonus episode, Barbara and I discuss the inherent problems with today's Supreme Court, the one person key to the entire January 6th discussion, and how to actually get them to talk. Plus, extra super bonus, Ann Arbor's finest ice cream experience and the benefits to mothering while being a lawyer. Stay tuned. Thank you so much to Barbara McQuaid. Thank you so much to you, the listener, for spending your time with us. I truly appreciate it with all my heart. Thank you. You can follow me on my Substack at marissarothkoff.substack.com for all the recipes that you hear in this Secret Life podcast. And there's also will be extra content there. So thank you and keep on being kind. <laughs>